NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Malak, and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down former athletes and decide whether or not they should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we are talking about former NBA forward Andre Kurlenko and whether or not he should get a call to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And joining us in just a second is senior writer for 538, Neil Payne. Before Neil joins us, a few quick stats about Kurlenko. Played 13 seasons in the NBA from 2001 to 2015. Over the course of his career, he averaged about 12 points per game, six boards and three assists, and 1.8 blocks and 1.4 steals. Now, if you think to yourself, that's quite high for both those statistics. Well, it is. Um, in NBA history, only four players, including Kurlenko, have averaged at least 1.8 blocks over the course of their career and at least 1.4 steals over the career. And those four players are, of course, Kurlenko, Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, and Anthony Davis. So three surefire, well, two guys already in the Hall of Fame, and Anthony Davis is a surefire Hall of Famer as well. Um, so it's quite impressive there. We'll get into that in a bit with Neil. Other than that, he was a one-time All-Star in the NBA. He was a three-time All-Defensive Team member and led the NBA in blocks in 2005 with 3.3 blocks per game. Now, outside of his NBA career, he also had an extremely successful international career. Outside of just winning a bronze medal for the 2012 Russian Olympic team when they played out in London, he also was a three-time champion of the top league in Russia. He actually won a championship before he came to the NBA as a young man. During the NBA lockout of 2012, he went back over to Russia and won a championship during that lockout season. And then after he retired from the NBA, he went back to Russia to play in the league and won another championship. So he was a three-time Russian league champion. He was also a two-time Russian league MVP. Um, and was also a four-time Russia player of the year and won the Euro league MVP in 2012. So he had quite the successful international career along with an extremely solid NBA career. And today with Neil, we're going to break down just from start to finish what Kurlenko did on the basketball floor to decide whether or not he should get into the Basketball Hall of Fame. So with that, um, let's bring on Neil. All right, so joining me today is senior writer for 538, Neil Payne. Neil, how you do today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. So, so Neil, um, I'm not going to lie, 538's in the news quite a bit the last <laughs> couple of days. It is Thursday, November 5th. Um, the election results are still being counted. Um, we will not be talking about that today, though. Um, the topic at hand is Andre Kurlenko, his career, and whether or not he deserves to get a spot in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Kind of a different election. <laughs> I guess I, I different election of sorts that has yeah. voting. Um, but yes, uh, an election in that. So, so Neil, when I, when I bring up the name Andre Kurlenko for first things first, what, what comes to your mind? Well, I'm probably the only person who has this thought or maybe one of only a handful of people, but it, it really takes me back to the early days of basketball analytics, because if we go back in time to around like 2003, 2004, 
uh, if you think about the state of analytics at that time, you know, nobody really was using it or minimally using it uh, to make decisions in front offices, which is as compared with today, where like every team has a, you know, large analytics department and kind of a lot of decisions are being made off of that. But back in the early 2000s, not a lot of people were really even talking about it. John Hollinger was in that space. I remember Dean Oliver uh, and, and this guy named Dan Rosenbaum, who was a professor at, I want to say UNC Greensboro, an economics professor, and he had had heard about uh, this concept that I think Dallas Mavericks were using right after Mark Cuban had taken over uh, as owner there. Uh, he, he had kind of commissioned some other economists to come up with this concept called adjusted plus minus, where basically you're looking at, you're trying to figure out a player's uh, influence on the game when he's on the court uh, by looking at the team's scoring margin when he's in versus when he's out and making adjustments for who he played with, who he played against, you know, some other things like where was the game played, that kind of thing. Uh, and there was a story about this uh, and about the things that Dallas was doing. And Dan read that and sort of something clicked with him and he was like, Oh, yeah, I, I um, know exactly what they're doing here. And if I get my hands on play by play data, I can kind of replicate this. And so he did uh, at, an, at a site called uh, 82games.com, which is run by Roland Beach, who ironically ended up being one of Dallas's. Um, I think uh, he was an analytics consultant, but then he was an assistant coach on the bench uh, when they won the championship in 2011. Uh, but anyway, so uh, he, he used to run a site called 82games.com with a bunch of analytic you know, research and projects. And one of the uh, things that they published was Dan Rosenbaum's original adjusted plus minus ratings. And, you know, there were some of the usual suspects at the top of the ratings, like Kevin Garnett and Tracy McGrady were the top two players in the league. And if you remember back in 2002, 2003, that, that range of years, the, that made total sense. I mean, those guys were amazing. Tim Duncan, Shaq, Kobe, the, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, these were kind of the rest of the, the names at the top of that list. But one of the names amid that group of sort of future Hall of Famers stood out and it was Andre Kirilenko. He showed up as the third best player in the league in the 03 and 04 seasons, according to this metric, adjusted plus minus, that he was having this crazy outsized contribution uh, on uh, the Utah Jazz when he was in the game. Uh, and, and that raised a lot of eyebrows for people, but sort of also you could kind of figure out, well, why is this happening? And so one of the things Dan did as part of this was he also ran a regression of traditional stats against this adjusted plus minus rating to kind of figure out like, okay, what correlates with being a good player in this metric? What types of things or activities are players doing that cause them to kind of stand out? And he found that versatility, you know, steals, blocks, just doing a bunch of different kind of stuff on the court and being efficient, of course, while doing it, but it's just sort of this variety of contributions was strongly correlated with being a good player that causes causes your team to play better on the court. That sounds like, oh, well, duh. But at the time, and it's sort of like, how do you get somebody like Andre Kirilenko showing up in the same list as your McGrady's and your KG and your Duncans and guys like that? Well, it turns out Andre Kirilenko was really good at doing a lot of really valuable stuff when he was in the game. And that made him one of these players that was sort of a secret analytics star, basically, despite having traditional numbers that maybe didn't jump off the page, you know, average double figures in points and put up, you know, decent rebounding numbers, decent field goal percentage, 
but he's really good at doing a lot of the like little things that showed up and made a team good when he was on the court. I think a guy like Jason Collins also showed up in that category early on also, whereas, you know, somebody that you would not look at his numbers and think that he was a star by any means. But if you looked at the advanced metrics, especially the ones that were kind of first coming up at that time, you got a different picture of how good he was. So that's really what jumps to mind when I think about Andre Kirilenko's career is just his his sort of out of nowhere placement on this list of, of players, really one of the first public lists available of players that were really good in this particular metric that I think took the analytic world by storm over the coming decade. Yeah, and, and I mean, he definitely wasn't appreciated during the time. I mean, he, he shows up on this, but that's not, a statistic most were, were looking at at that point. No, not at of, all. And it, and it kind of tells because, you know, he, during that time period you're talking about where he's ranking in this category among the, the likes of the Kevin Garnett's who's winning an MVP during that time to Tim Duncan's MVP winning, he gets one all-star appearance and that's it. So he's, he's definitely not getting appreciated. I think the advanced metric community, which at that time was very small in, in NBA circles, appreciated him. And then I would say people that were playing fancy basketball back then yes. were probably appreciating because he is the guy who is, he's doing a little of everything. He's, he's never going to be a big time score for you, but he's getting rebounds. He's getting assists. And then the blocks and steals numbers he had, if you really look across and we're getting this probably a little later, but if you look at the totals he was putting up every year, he's really in rare territory. Um, there's only a few players that have put up some of the numbers he has from the defensive standpoint. And they're all legitimate Hall of Famers. And I, I do think that if he played just 10 years later, if he was playing in today's NBA especially, he would be getting almost max money. He would be that ideal small ball five um, just because of how, how agile he was, how he could guard one through five. And he could really fill up the box score. Yeah, and I think eventually, I mean, as analytics kind of spread through the NBA, he did get a pretty good contract. I mean, he maxed he out at, at making $18 million a year in, in 2011. Uh, and in some ways, that was viewed as a little bit of an albatross later in his career, uh, especially as he sort of, you know, had some injury problems and, and some of that. But I think, yeah, you're, you're totally right that he would have jumped off the page very early for people. And I, I thought this was interesting because you mentioned the defense and the versatility that uh, that those are the hallmarks that I think of with him. And if you use our metric, we have this metric called Raptor, not been, not named after the team. It's got a fancy acronym, which I've forgotten the, the what it stands for right now. But basically this is like another measure of plus minus, a little bit similar to adjusted plus minus, but also has the extra layer of having player tracking data on top of it for the years where that's available, which is, I should say, the majority of Andre Kirilenko's career does not have that. But if you look at this metric going back to 1977, he is 21st in Raptor defense per 100 possessions among players with at least 15,000 minutes. So we're talking about in the same neighborhood as your Dikembe Mutombo's, your, you know, Paul George, your, your Dwight Howard, your Alonzo Mourning. So these are the type of guys that defensively he should have been in the conversation with probably would have been, like you said, if he had come along a little bit later when we have some of the metrics kind of coming to the forefront. And he's one of only seven players in history who had at least two steals per 100 possessions and at least three blocks per 100 possessions. And I think that really cuts to the core of what he was all about as a player was just, like you said, those steal and block numbers, the type of which 
you know, we really didn't see that much of, you know, the other guys on that list with the, with the two steals per 100 and the three blocks per 100 are like your David Robinson, your Ben yep. Wallace, uh, your Olajuwon. Yes, yep. exactly. Josh Smith, uh, you know, some of uh, Anthony Davis among uh, active players, the only player on that list. So we're talking about these guys that really, you know, stuffed the, the stat sheet and the box score. And so fantasy wise, of course you would have, you know, he would have been a hidden gem for you and probably helped a lot of people win their leagues in the, in the mid two thousands based on some of those numbers. Yeah. So, so Neil, moving on to our, our next mini segment here, that memorable moment. Um, this is really where we try to say, you know, if he, if he were getting to hall of fame, like what, what would people point to as, you know, that was his hall of fame moment. And it, and it can be anything here. It's pretty wide open. It could be a specific game. He played a playoff series or even a season. You talked about a couple of those seasons that, you know, advanced metrics wise, he maybe should have been the MVP conversation. When you think of Andrew Kirlenko, is there a certain moment in time that you're like, that's his hall of fame moment. Well, you know, I, I think when we're talking about moments, there, it's kind of the great irony of Kirilenko's career because most people's most memorable Kirilenko moment was probably a negative one. And <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of when Baron Davis yep. barreled down the baseline and dunked in his face in the 2007 playoffs. That was part of the Golden State, we believe, playoff run long before Steph Curry and Draymond Green and all those guys. Uh, and really one of the best dunks I think in playoff history one of the most memorable ones there was that great call by the Warriors announcer where he's like put that on your flat top you know referring to Andre Kirilenko's haircut and like you know uh, that was probably the most memorable moment involving Andre Kirilenko but what's so ironic about it is that so that was in the waning moments of game three of that series and the the um the jazz were up two nothing going into that game warriors pulled out a game they're already up 20 at that point so that game was really kind of already over not a very high leverage moment uh, in that in that game uh and what people forget is that uh, they so the the Jazz won that game uh, won that series in five games uh, so they won each of the next two games after that and in game five of that series Kirilenko went on to have 21 points on eight of 12 shooting he had 15 rebounds and three steals to close out the Warriors in their we believe run in their season and it was probably the best game of Kirilenko's career certainly by game score which is this metric at Basketball Reference where you can kind of you know add up a player's contributions into one metric. And it was probably the best playoff series he played in his career, but it was probably overshadowed by that one moment of posterization in this sort of meaningless moment late in a game that was already, you know, long since decided. And I think that's kind of ironic and, and very kind of symbolic for Kirilenko because he's a guy that doesn't have, you know, uh, very, very uh, memorable moments. Aside from that, he's not probably going to be doing the posterization. He's a guy whose whose value showed up in accumulation and a lot of different, you know, little things that added up over time and helped the team win. That's not really going to show up in a memorable moment. Maybe the most that you could say in that is Kirilenko is really good at this thing called a five by five, which well, is I have, have so I have written down right here. I wanted to get. I'm, I was about to ask you if you knew what that was. So can, continue on. Continue. Yeah. On. So a five by five is when you have at least five points rebounds assists steals and blocks in the same game so uh Kirilenko did that three times uh he and Hakeem Olajuwon are the only players ever to do it 
multiple times. I think Hakeem did it six times. Yep. And also, uh, Kirilenko had a six by five yep. uh, in this game against the Lakers in 2006, where he had 14 points, nine assists, eight rebounds, seven blocks, and six steals. So uh, this is a guy that uh, you know did a lot of uh, you know the 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 five by five and the six by five are these symbolic metrics for him that maybe you have to kind of dive into these more esoteric weird statistical combinations to get a signature moment or a signature performance but they also speak to that versatility that we we're talking about earlier where this is a guy that did a little bit of a lot of different things pretty much everything yeah so the i'm really glad you brought up the five by five because here's the thing Many no, most people don't know about that. Um, the only time they're going to know about it is if someone does it in an NBA game and it pops up how rare that is. Because you don't really like. When I thought about, it, I was like, okay, I'm sure that's happened a bunch. Fourteen players have done it in NBA history, and as you said, Elijah and Krilink are the only ones to do it more than once. What I have written down here, though, when I was looking through this, because I and also you mentioned the six by five. Him and Olajuwon are the only ones to do it, but Olajuwon, it was a double overtime game. It took him to get it. Kirilenko's the only one to do it in a regulation game, so it's even more impressive. But there was a stretch he had December 2003. So the month of December 2003, he's only 22 that year. That's the only year he was an all-star. Uh, across 16 games during that month, he averaged 15, 9, and 4. So 15 points, 9 boards, 4 assists, 3.5 blocks, and 2.5 steals. But what's more unique about that month and why I go to it is we talk about how unique that five by five club is, right? He had two of those games within seven days of each other <laughs> during that month. He had a 10 point, 12 board, six assists, five blocks, six steal game against the Knicks. And then he had a 19.5 board, seven assists, five block, eight steal game against Houston. So within a week, he got two of them and, and, only 14 plays in history has even done it once. So I don't know if that will ever happen again. Um, again, it's super unique. It's hard to even bring that up in general conversation, but it just does show how much of a, a box score stuffer he is. And I'm, I'm a big, like, even as a young kid, I loved looking at the box score every morning to see what everyone's stats were and, and seeing that many large numbers across the board. Um, that's something that would always bring me like a lot of happiness, oddly. And, and Kurlenko's box scores were definitely up there, especially when he's, across every metric basically and that uh, you know that obviously also speaks to the fantasy value when when you have sure. a guy that's kind of boosting your your categories across so many different categories made him so valuable um and i think playing in utah at that time probably also you know was kind of a weird relationship with that box score stuffing because for a lot of people especially you know on the east coast they're probably not staying up and watch you know they're not watching on uh especially like a lot of utah games probably at that time were not necessarily on tnt they were not necessarily nationally televised early days of league pass i'm not even sure if league pass necessarily existed at that stage of time oh, if no. it was it was like really primitive so probably not that many people saw andre kirilenko play he was probably this kind of mythical character that only existed if you played fantasy especially in in the newspaper in the sort of box scores when you wake up the next day and you're having coffee and you're checking how your team did or checking how you know who had the best games of the previous night and you're just like who is this guy like what is he doing you know how is he doing this uh and so i think that probably added like kind of a mythical category to him a little bit early in his career uh, just because it's sort of like you don't often have a guy especially since he hit the ground running so quickly as this like mega 
productive stat machine guy mm-hmm. uh, from his rookie season onward. You know, it's not like he really needed like a lot of runway to kind of hit the peak of what he was doing. I mean, even by 2002, he wasn't really a full-time starter, really even in, in those two first seasons that he had in Utah, you know, starting out at age 20 and in 2001-02. But he was already doing a lot of this stuff and putting up a lot of these numbers already as he was kind of, uh, you know, such a young player in the league. And he was an all-star. That lone all-star appearance that you talked about came in his third season at age 22. So people were kind of starting to catch on by then, but it was really kind of a quick ascent for him to the uh, – to the level of this like stat stuffing guy. Yeah, no, I couldn't say it any better. Um, so, so final segment before we get into our case for case against, it's called and twins. I love quarterbacks eating dirt, pom poms and short skirts, fans who won't quit, and those twins. And for and twins, and this might be a little tough for Krilenko because I think he was a little ahead of his time, but. It's really who in the Hall of Fame today reminds you most of Krilenko, whether it be how he played the game or even from a statistical standpoint. Is there anyone in the Hall of Fame today that you are like him or Krilenko kind of alike? Yeah, I think you're right that this is kind of a tough segment to kind of talk about with Andre Kirilenko because there aren't that many players like him, period, you know, no. much less guys in the Hall of Fame. Like we talked about the rarity of those five by fives and the five by six and all that. Uh, you just don't see that many guys, especially going back into the history of the NBA that did you know, so much of so many different things. I mean, maybe one line of comparison is as kind of like a very poor man's version of your Elijah Wan or David Robinson type guys, these like stat stuffing big men that could do the five by fives or a push for a quadruple double. I know David Robinson did that in his career. Obviously, Karolinko nowhere near as good as either of those. It feels, no. you know, obviously it's kind of funny to, to make that comparison. To be honest, I think you could compare him however unfavorably to somebody like Kevin Garnett, which I think is really interesting because Garnett, like you said, MVP at that time of when Dan Rosenbaum crunched numbers, but also kind of side by side with Kirilenko at the top of that plus minus list. And I think Kirilenko was a sort of Garnett light, you know, a guy who's a really good defensive forward, did a lot of things different, uh, you know, different things well all over the court. Uh, and I did a little comparison using our Raptor offensive and defensive ratings for Kirilenko and just looked at, you know, among players who had a certain number of minutes, I think it was like 10,000 minutes or 15,000 or something like that. Uh, and, and looked at the squared differences between their offensive and defensive ratings and Kirilenko's offensive and defensive ratings and the players with the smallest difference are the ones that are most similar. So if you do that for every player's career since 1977, the top five most similar players to uh, Andre Kirilenko are Alvin Robertson, Nate McMillan, Danny Green, Kevin Garnett, and Michael Ray Richardson. I thought that was really interesting that Garnett came in there. The difference being that Garnett, obviously he was better defensively. He played a lot longer, more sure. minutes by, by um, you know, I, I think almost double if you include the playoffs uh, or maybe even more than twice as many minutes. But offensively, they had the same career Raptor rating. And I think that that speaks to like, they were both above average, uh, you know, kind of like that prototype stretch four type of guy, or maybe now, like you said, even kind of, they would play center in today's um, NBA guys that could shoot a little bit, but also really good defensively blocked a lot of shots, a lot of steals and just, you know, did all the stuff. And I think Kevin Garnett, 
you know, was was a player that uh, came along at the right time, but he was also kind of a bridge player in the history and the evolution of basketball, where you had guys like your your Robinson and your Elijah Wands in a previous era, but they were they were clearly centers. They were not, you know, power power forward types like Garnett. Garnett famously did not want to be called seven feet tall. He did not mm-hmm. want that image of himself as being this kind of plodding you know, seven foot center, whatever. He wanted to be viewed more as sort of like a guy that could play the three potentially and play the four and did a little bit of everything. And so I think it's really interesting that Garnett as this kind of evolutionary link to the way that big men have to play now, you know, you don't see uh, a lot of big men survive in the NBA of today that don't have similarities to Kevin Garnett uh, in, in some way, shape or form in their game, or were at least not influenced by him. I think it's interesting that Kirilenko shows up as kind of a contemporary of Garnett that was doing some of the same things, albeit at a lower level. And to me also, one of the things is you could squint and maybe think about Julius Irving as a similar player. This is a little bit out in left field. No, um, no, it's not. It's not, though. It's not. Continue, though. (laughs) And we don't have full data for the ABA years of Dr. J. And it's a little like, what do you do with that necessarily? But once he got to the NBA, maybe even like we're talking about 80s, Sixers, Dr. J. You know, he was really versatile. He was good on defense, good defensive metrics, good at drawing fouls, good rebounder, got a good number of steals and blocks. He wasn't really a primary ball handler in that offense. They had Mo Cheeks. They had, you know, some guys that could yeah. kind of create. Uh, and But he managed to score outside of that role, do it efficiently. Irving was doing a lot of that stuff at a higher level than Andre Kirilenko, obviously, especially the scoring. But I think it's sort of a comparison if you're kind of going back further into history and trying to find Hall of Famers, uh, that, that you could make that comparison also uh, for, for Kirilenko. And again, he's kind of a bridge player because we see a lot of versatile guys today like Giannis, Anthony Davis come to mind. Again, better players than Kirilenko, but it is sort of, you could, you could place Kirilenko in that lineage as sort of an evolutionary link between, uh, you know, the, the combination of a Dr. J who was not a big man uh, in the, in the 80s and an Elijah one who was a big man and kind of merging them together, you kind of get the Garnett, uh, which is sort of an evolutionary link to your Giannis and your Anthony Davis now. And Karolinko is sort of part of that bridge. That is a very forced, I think, narrative way to kind of explain it. But I think it does make a little bit of sense if you're trying to kind of find guys in the Hall of Fame that could draw a comparison to Karolinko. So I love the Dr. J comp. I, that was not even on my radar. But let's think about it, right? Both of them, great nicknames. Julius <laughs> Irving was Dr. J. Andre Kalenko was AK-47. AK-47. So, so that's already, but, but like people forget, like I think people today only really think of Dr. J as a, a dunker. Um, I, I just think that's ingrained in everyone's brain, but he was much more than that. And from the defensive side, he was, he had the extremely long wingspan, just like Kralenko had. And you know, Kralenko had a seven foot four wingspan. That's, lo- that's yeah. larger than Giannis's today, which yeah. is insane. Um, but Dr. J had an extremely long wingspan as well. And, um, if you're looking at, you know, we've talked about Hakeem and David Robinson, but um, in NBA history, only four players have had 200 blocks and 150 steals in a season. It's Kareem, I'm sorry, it's Hakeem, it's David Robinson, it's Dr. J, and it's Kurlenko. So Hey, that makes total sense. It, he, he was able to do all that. And then I know you said earlier he's most famous for being dunked on by Baron Davis, which is very true, but he 
he could throw it down in traffic as well. And I don't know if this means anything because it means nothing to me, but he won a slam dunk competition in the Russian league. So <laughs> I, I don't know what the dunks are looking like over there, but he at least, he won a dunk competition in Russia. Dr. J won in the ABA. So different leagues outside the NBA. There is some guys, but no. Andre Kleiner is nowhere yeah. near the player of Dr. J, but I do like, there's parts of their game that are similar. That, that's for sure. Yeah, and, you know, I think when we're being honest about it, it was a lot more uh, easy to find comparisons for Kirilenko among the the kind of next tier below Hall of Fame, these kind of Hall of very good type of guys. Like, I think Sean Marion is a great comparison for Kirilenko, yes. especially among contemporaries. Andre Iguodala, if we're talking about guys now, Paul Millsap, uh, the late Clifford Robinson, who was another guy that was sort of a prototypical kind of stretch big type of guy that could could play a bunch of different positions, played center, but also could play the wing. Bobby Jones, a teammate of, yep. of uh, uh, Julius Irving on those Sixer teams. He's another guy that showed up surprisingly, perhaps shockingly high when we were kind of crunching numbers off of plus minus metrics and trying to estimate those for historical guys, you know, based on what I said earlier, those regressions where it's like, okay, guys that do these things tend to be good at plus minus. So we can kind of infer that these historical players that did all those things well, probably would have had a good plus minus if we could calculate it uh, in, in the previous era. Bobby Jones always showed up really high on that. So I think it's easier to find the guys that are in that next level, kind of a notch below Hall of Fame caliber than to sort of squint and say, oh, maybe it looks a little like a poor man's, you know, Hakeem or whatever. And I think that tells you about you know, as we'll talk about in the next segment, the 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 case against Kirilenko's Hall of Famer yeah. uh, candidacy is he has a lot more in common with the guys that are sort of Hall of Very Good than he has with the guys who are Hall of Fame. But I think being part of the Hall of Fame conversation is some of that is about your place in the evolution of the game. And I think Kirilenko, and you said this earlier on, that if he had come along 10 years later, there would have been a lot more guys that looked like him in terms of the way that they play, in terms of their contribution statistically and sort of how that that role works in a, in a modern NBA team than there were in like 2002. And I think there's something to be said for those guys that are kind of ahead of their time, you know, guys that, that were the prototype of uh, players in the future rather than a prototype of a player type in the past that died off, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And Bobby Jones is actually who I had written down. He actually got in the hall of fame last year in 2019. Oh, I actually um, missed yeah, that completely. Yeah, I forgot all about that. He, he finally got in, which honestly bodes well for Kralenko because they were like body type wise, super lanky, tall guys. And even if, if, if you don't even go into advanced metrics, which when you were saying the top five, I thought Bobby might come up earlier, but, um, even if you just look at standard, like what an old time basketball writer who doesn't care about advanced metrics would look at their numbers. Krilenko actually beats him across traditional numbers across the board. Bobby just of course has the championship, which he won with Dr. J had a lot more playoff experience. And then a lot more all NBA defensive teams. Cause he played longer, but outside of that, I mean, they're, they're just core numbers outside of advanced metrics, Bobby Jones, Krilenko about the same guy. However, you know, Bobby took a very long time to get in as it's 2019 and he was just getting in then. So 
And maybe some um, of that does speak to, you know, the evolution in the way people are thinking about exactly. players, you know, and, and the things that we're using to evaluate them. Uh, and and that whole, the whole championship thing is really interesting because, you know, he was a supporting player, very important supporting player, but still a supporting player on that Sixers team that won in 83. And Kirilenko, you know, he tried that with that Brooklyn Nets team later in his career that ironically enough had Kevin Garnett. You know, it had all of the kind of old guys like your Joe Johnson and your Darren Williams and your Paul Pierce and, and Kevin Garnett uh, at Brooke Lopez. And Brooke Lopez was young at that time, but, you know, that that, that core of that team that uh, they, they really went all in trying to win a championship and Kirilenko was part of that. It obviously didn't happen, but I think if Kirilenko had been a little bit younger during that phase of his career where he was on a very competitive team or a team that maybe looked competitive on paper and had aspirations to win a championship, he probably could have gotten further uh, and, and closer to winning that championship as it was. He really only made the conference finals once in his career. Yep. And I think that part is maybe what gets held against him. That was the same year as the dunk by Baron Davis. They won that series. They went to the conference finals and then lost in five to the Spurs in the, in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, and he didn't really play well in that series. And I think that's another thing that will probably be held against him if you're kind of looking at the playoff stats. But in the rounds leading up to that, he was really good. So I think that including and, and maybe most of all that that series against the Warriors. So I, I just think his his career was a little bit of a story of the time being off uh, as to whether or not you know he was probably the best or second best player on those jazz teams and I don't know if a team with Andre Kirilenko as its best player could win the championship I think that that's a little bit of a stretch and and that's a little bit of the way that we view Hall of Fame credentials in some ways is like could you win the championship if player X was your best player? And if the answer is no, maybe you'll get in the Hall of Fame, but maybe you won't. Whereas if the answer is yes, you're almost certainly going to get into the Hall of Fame. And so I think that if he had been a supporting player on a, a better team earlier in his career, we could be talking about him as having that Bobby Jones-like you know, championship ring as bolstering his case. Yeah, I um, I always thought he would have been perfect on those pop teams on the Spurs. Oh um, man, I just I would have loved him as a supporting role player there, and maybe you know if he could have had a career like a Ginobili did on that team as kind of that third guy. But um, had, <laughs> I could talk about that scenario all day. But getting into our final segment, Neil, um, we're going to court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. So court is kind of the meat of this. It's, it's really, what is the case for Kurlenko's Hall of Fame candidacy? What's the case against? And we've touched on a couple points here on both already, but I guess let's just go to case four um, to start. You know, I have a couple of the advanced metrics here where he really places among the elite players of all time. Um, I, I have down, I kind of want to talk about box plus minus and VORP. But what, what would you like to start with, I guess, here? Because some of the advanced metrics for him do put him in historical context of some of the all-time greats. Yeah, well, I think you're, you're kind of uh, barking up the right tree in terms of where the case for rests for, for Kirilenko. It's in those adjusted plus-minus type stats or in the case of box plus-minus, something that's sort of based off of a regression off of adjusted plus minus. So if you look at Raptor wins above replacement, our metric, uh, since 1977, ABA-NBA merger, uh, he ranks number 76 uh, in, over that span. So he has the same career wins above replacement as Grant Hill, 
He has more than Dennis Johnson, Kevin McHale, Dikembe Mutombo, Vladi Divac, you know, some of these guys. Uh, and he's within striking distance of like, you know, uh, some some players that maybe we wouldn't consider to be Hall of Famers, but they're in that Hall of very good, like your Millsap, Shane Battier in that conversation, Richard Lewis, Doc Rivers, Jack Sikma, Rod Strickland, and of course, Grant Hill. They're very neck and neck. Um, and so... Uh, I think I think also the VORP question, I I'll let you get into that because it is sort of shocking when you look at box plus minus and VORP, which is based on box plus minus yeah. as being, you know, what is that ranking and what does it mean basically? <laughs> yeah. So I, I got to, and I want you to jump in here because I, you're the expert on, on all of these and you can tell me, you know, how much, and I'm curious what your take is on it. So like how much stock should we take in some of these advanced metrics? What do you feel best signifies, you know, someone's actually significance on a basketball court. But, but I always feel, and whenever I look at this, if I'm looking at the top of the list and the best players of all time are, are up there, then it has to mean something like this is tying back to the best players still. But then when you see that one kind of, I don't want to say anomaly, but like random guy in there, like, should he be there? Is this that? So, so let me, let me start first with box, box plus minus, which again, it is not, it doesn't take into account playing time. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a rate stat. So how much you're actually playing um, career box plus minus he's 25th all time in NBA history with a 4.9. Um, anyone ahead of him on that list is in the hall of fame already or is, is going to be in the Hall of Fame. I, I would say the worst player on the list ahead of him is Manu Ginobili, who I think will be in the Hall of Fame. And the second worst player is probably like Tracy McGrady. And again, he ranks 25th all time. Let me read you 26 through 30. So 26 is Russell Westbrook, 27 is Dame Lillard, 28 is Hakeem Olajuwon, 29 is Kobe, 30 is Dirk Nowinski, Okay. And then if you're looking at the top five of all time here, it's players I consider all-time greats, MJ, LeBron, Chris Paul, Magic Johnson, David Robinson. And, and this is where I want your opinion, Neil. So, um, and this is all off um, basketball reference. Um, this, this, is where, this is one of the stats that they are really keeping track of pretty intensely on there. They kind of have this ranking, um, a scale, so it can give the common fans some knowledge of, you know, what's a good score, what's a bad score. For a single season, if you're doing box plus minus, um, I, a plus 10, they're saying is like an all-time season, like a peak Jordan LeBron. A plus eight is an MVP season. A plus six is like an all-NBA season. A plus four is an all-star game consideration. Plus two is a good starter. And a zero is like a decent player. It's like the average guy. And then you can get negative twos like a bench player. Okay, so over... Kurlenko's career, he had four seasons plus six. So according to this, he would have, if you were just looking at this, he would have six All-NBA seasons. And then he also had a 9.2 year um, in 05, which would be almost near the all-time great season MVP caliber season. And then a 7.9 in that All-Star game season we were talking about where KG won the MVP. KG was first in this ranking. Duncan was second, Kurilenko was third, T-Mac fourth, Kobe fifth. So if you were just looking, again, which you can't, but if you were just looking at box plus minus, according to this scale on basketball reference, Kurilenko should theoretically maybe have two MVP trophies, 
four <laughs> All-NBA team appearances and six All-Star game appearances, which would put him in a much better spot to make the Hall of Fame. Obviously, you cannot go off just this. Um, it's it's rate of play. It's not like it's one of the seasons he only played 41 games, so that that should almost be thrown out, and that was the 9.2. But at the same time, it it does show when he was on the floor, he was contributing contributing at at minimum, I would say, an all star level. Yeah, and you know, there's a little bit of danger when we're talking about something like um, box plus minus, where it is based on that regression of yep. trying to figure out you know, players who are good at these particular things tend to have a good plus minus, but I found that there are always going to be outliers, right? You know, they're going to be players who are good at all the things that, that tend to be correlated with having a good influence on the court, but maybe don't necessarily like that you would be picking up on the players. You'd be picking up on most of the players that do have a really good actual like if we knew like if we're somehow omniscient and we knew exactly what every player's contribution was when they were on the court you would pick up on like the vast majority of the guys who did have a really good contribution when you were looking at the top of that list but there's also the danger that you would pick up on somebody that just happened to be really good at all of the things that are correlated with being uh, you know helping your team when he's on the court but not necessarily someone who is you know as valuable when they're on the court and you would have no way of really knowing that when we're talking about in sort of an older era now for the years that Kirilenko played we do have the plus minus and he was generally kind of an on minus off court monster basically like during that period of time from 02 to 06 he was uh, his, his on minus off plus minus so his like with or without you plus minus uh, for the Jazz was in double digits uh, positively in four out of those five years. Now, the one year that it wasn't, he, the Jazz were actually slightly better without him than with him. So it shows the variability of that metric. I think it's a little bit safer to say for him than for you know some of the older players for whom we don't even have play-by-play that, yes, he was having a positive impact. But I think... Uh, you know, the, the point is well taken about how box plus minus, it, it should be one of the metrics we look at. Uh, and, and when we're cognizant of the fact that there can be weird outliers and stuff like that. But like you said, when he when you look at the top list and all of the other players, we sort of know deep down are great players or they're widely considered to be great players. And then you have this outlier guy in there and you're just like, what's he doing here? It probably it should be stronger uh, evidence that it's like, well, maybe we should think more of this guy than it is like something's wrong with the metric. But maybe it's a little bit of both, right? You know, it's like sure. it's a little bit of like, does Kirilenko make us think less of BPM or does BPM make us think more of Kirilenko? And it's like little column A, little column B, maybe a little bit more of like we should be higher on Kirilenko in the in the final analysis because BPM is a good stat when it comes to. Uh, one of my favorite tests for for a metric in basketball particularly is if you get a bunch of players who are good at this metric on a team together, your your team should be good, right? You yeah. know, how how good does that uh, how, how good is that team predicted to be? And is it actually good in reality? And if you do this with something like player efficiency rating, PER, you actually it's it's not that effective at predicting you could get a bunch of guys who are good at PER put together that team roll out the the ball onto the court and 
maybe not reliably be able to have a good team off of that. And then you'll kind of ask yourself like, well, gosh, I got all these guys who are good at PR. Why don't I have a good team? But you can much more reliably build a good team if you get a bunch of guys who are good at BPM or even more so a bunch of guys who are good at um, real plus minus or uh, which is sort of the spiritual descendant of adjusted plus minus or Raptor, you know, all of these metrics that sort of take as many different things into account as we can. So that makes me also feel a little bit more like, well, if Kirilenko is really good at this metric that if players who are good at it tend to make a team better, you know, in subsequent seasons, then he was probably onto something. Yeah. Now, now, Neil, again, we talked earlier uh, in the podcast kind of about, you know, when Kirilenko came around, your first thought when you think of him is like he was one of the early guys where advanced metrics was starting to be talked about. And obviously that was maybe what, 15 years ago. Um, we've come a long way. Yeah, since maybe then. even longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's come a little long way, but, I still think when it comes down to um, especially basketball today and and football too, it's really just baseball, but I I feel like when people are voting for the hall of fame, they are not looking at any of these numbers yet. They are not talking about, at least in the mainstream media, they're not talking about VORP. They're not talking about adjusted plus minus Raptor. They're, they're not talking about any of these things. If you, I always think of, you know, I watch part of the interruption all the time. Michael Wilbon, if you try to say this to him, he'd be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, but, but the people only look at points, rebounds, assists in baseball though, you know, war wins above replacement and some of their advanced metrics. I think when that first came up, people kind of, or jaws, people kind of, you know, look the other way, old time baseball writers are like, I don't want to hear this, but over time I'm seeing now at least players getting in now because of their war. Like it's a main focal point of the argument of why they should get in where 20 years ago, they would have had 30 years ago, they would have had no chance of getting in. Do you, do you see basketball uh, slowly gaining traction where th- this will be in consideration when it comes to actually electing people for a hall of fame? Or do you think we're still a ways away from th- these being common things people bring up when we're talking about how great a player is or how important a player is to success of a team? Yeah, I think it will probably never get to the same level in basketball that it is in baseball, just because it's a lot more difficult to measure all of the stuff that players do, especially on defense in basketball than it, than it is in baseball. And don't get me wrong, baseball defensive metrics kind of have their own issues. Yeah. Um, but I think we just have like a less complete sense of a, a player statistically, or at least the gap between sort of like you know, you don't need stats to tell you that LeBron is great, right? Uh, and uh, But he does look great in all of the stats also. But I think in those edge cases, and Kirilenko might be one of them, you know, I think people are always going to err more on the side of the eye test and, you know, the reputation test and, and all of that in basketball than they do in, um, in baseball. But at the same time, I think we're going to see it play a much larger role you know than it does now uh and and it probably plays a larger role now than it did even in the past even if you're not seeing the conversations on like pardon the interruption or whatever it's just sort of the perceptions of players might change incrementally based on you know maybe it's not bpm but maybe you're looking at true shooting percentage instead of field goal percentage maybe you're looking at you know, per 100 possession stats or per minute stats instead of per game stats. It's like some of those small things. And I think that that helps Kirilenko because if we're talking about the case against, uh, and I don't, you know, to be honest, as it is right now, sitting here, I don't think he has a particularly strong Hall of Fame candidacy case. Uh, But if you're looking at something like basketball references, Hall of Fame probability, he has a 0.4 
percent chance of making it. But if you understand that that is based on, and they're not trying to make it any different, but it's based on how voters have tended to view things in the past, what metrics voters have tended to find important mm -hmm. in the past. And that's your per game stats. And that's really the things that Kirilenko doesn't look great in. I mean, he averaged 11.8 career points per game, 5.5 rebounds, 2.7 assists. Those aren't Hall of Fame numbers necessarily, if we're talking about traditionally, but it, it's not really projecting forward to, to look at the things that people will hold important in the next generation of sports writers and media and, and experts and all the people that, that kind of vote on things. So probably a 0.4% chance is underrating uh, Kirilenko's case. But at the same time, I think also he's always going to be hurt by something, uh, by, by the fact that he was so versatile, right? Like uh, Dikembe Mutombo, I mentioned him earlier as being sort of a, a player that has similar, you know, war value in, in Raptor. And also sort of, you know, he's not, he was better defensively than Andre Kirilenko, but he is a similar like, hey, they're both really good defensive players, sort of players that can make a big difference at that end. But I think we remember Mutombo, for the shot blocking, you know, the finger wag, like he has this very specific brand that we can kind of call to our mind uh, and instantly think of like, oh, he was a really shut down defensive big man, you know, uh, rim protector type of guy. But I think a guy like Kirilenko, who was good at a lot of different stuff, and some of that stuff is invisible to the eye, invisible to the per game stats, the traditional stats, they're, they're always going to be inherently at a disadvantage compared with somebody who is really, really good at one thing, and that was their calling card, because you can't call upon like a mental image of, I mean, it was, we talked about it uh, with Kirilenko earlier. It's like difficult to think of like, what is a signature Andre Kirilenko moment? Like, was it the moment that he secured the six by five? I guess, you know, it's like the rebound sure. that put him over, you know, put him <laughs> up at the top, uh, you know, and I think that that uh, speaks to, I think just players like that are, like I said earlier, they, they produce their value by kind of small accumulation over time. And those types of players are, are never going to have the same, I think, impact in people's minds that a player that does something, you know, very high profile and maybe they're less all around valuable, but if they do one thing really well and we can visualize that one thing, they're going to have a leg up on a guy that does is really good at a lot of different small things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, the case against him outside of everything you just said, like playing in Utah doesn't help. Um, people, people try to get out of Utah for the most part. I hope Donovan Mitchell stays there. I think he's fun there, but it's not the biggest market. And then he went to Minnesota for a year, Minnesota market. He went for the New Jersey nets for a year, but was never really playing on the national stage. He made that one Western conference finals, but they lost to the Spurs. So he was never really on TV much with which was playoff success. And then, yeah, I mean, you look at his best season, which was, I think we keep talking about 2004. You're averaging 16 points a game and eight boards. I mean, that's great, but that's never going to jump off the page. And if you're not, you know, jumping off the page by winning defensive player of the year awards or doing things like that, even though he was an excellent defender, he was never really picking up that hardware. I mean, three all defensive teams, one all-star game. I mean, we were talking about Bobby Jones earlier. Bobby Jones made 11 all defensive teams. He, he was a four-time all-star. So the hardware is lacking there and all that's lacking though. I mean, again, as we keep talking about the advanced metrics point to that, he was a excellent player, but 
as we keep going back and forth, you got to take all of that, you know, as a, as a whole, and you can't rely on one of these, you know, numbers to really tell you if, if he was, you know, usually, as you said, I think before, you don't need advanced metrics to say like Kevin Garnett's a hall of famer or Tim Duncan's a hall of famer for Kurlenko. It's really his case. Um, a lot of the time, because he didn't even play that long. He was injured a lot. He only played 800 games, I think for his career. So it wasn't even that long of a career accumulation wise. He didn't accumulate any kind of stats that jump off the page. Yeah. I was just about to say, I mean, really maybe the, the biggest stumbling block of all beyond just the kind of pedestrian looking, uh, traditional stats is just that lack of longevity that basically he was done as a player for all intents and purposes by age 32 you know he played seven games for the Nets at age 33 in 2015 and then that was kind of it he retired so I mean we're talking about comparing him with Kevin Garnett and maybe at their peak they are you know similar players in style even if Garnett was better but the other big edge that a lot of these guys have over a Kirilenko is that they just played for a long time Garnett was playing you know in his late 30s you know 40 and pushing 40 um, uh, whereas Kirilenko really didn't even have that that period of time. You know, he missed all of the 2012 season. Uh, I think he was playing, maybe he was playing overseas or something. That was his age 30 season. Yep. Uh, and and when you lose that, and then also uh, he didn't play uh, in, uh, he played also in, in a pro league in Russia at age um, 33 in 2015 uh, after leaving the NBA. So that is sort of, you know, going to be held against you, probably rightly so, if you don't have that 30s, you know, that 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 block of years in your career that you can point to. And one of the other big hallmarks of Hall of Fame players is they're able and willing to play regularly uh, and, and be a part of a team, at least, and, and a, you know, to varying degrees of success as they go into their mid-30s and into, you know, approaching age 40, like, maybe Vince Carter is a great example of a guy that when we're talking about him uh, in his twenties, maybe he wasn't a hall of famer, you know, maybe he, uh, we would have had a different narrative of his career, but because he stuck around and was a part of a, 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 you know, teams that had varying levels of success, but he was an NBA player, viable NBA player for a very long time after turning 30, that probably changed the narrative of his career. And he'll probably make the hall of fame because of it. And it's a little different in, you know, in baseball, we talk about compilers and all of that, yeah. but you know, if you stick around long enough to get 3000 hits, uh, or in the case of Harold Baines, however many hits he got, he didn't even get 3,000, I don't think. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you just stick around long enough and ring some of those magic bells and are just sort of a fixture in the game long enough, you can also kind of grow on people as a potential Hall of Fame candidate. And they start to kind of think of you as being like, you know, a mainstay in the game. Uh, whereas with Kirilenko, it, you, you just kind of miss out if your last uh, year as a, as a regular player is at age 32. Yeah. You, you saying that about baseball, we just did an Omar Vizquel episode a few weeks ago with Zach Mazel from the athletic. And that was the main argument. Like he just played forever and almost got to 3000 hits. Didn't get there though. Um, you gotta okay. ring that bell, man. You, you gotta, you gotta get that magic number. Um, all right. So, so final verdict here. Um, I think we, you've kind of mentioned it already, uh, Neil, but um, two questions here. We both kind of answer them. One, um, do do you personally think, not the voters, but do you personally think Andre Kurlenko should be 
in the Basketball Hall of Fame? And then two, do you think he'll actually ever get voted into the Hall of Fame? Um, I think for both of the questions, the answer is no. I think um, he belongs in the Hall of Very Good Players. And maybe I'll even write a story about his place in that <laughs> Hall of Pretty Damn Good Players uh, at some point. Um, but I think, yeah, the longevity hurts him. I think the lack of playoff, you know, notable playoff runs aside from that one trip to the kind of a short trip to the conference finals um, uh, is held against him. I think the fact that you said it yourself that you can really only point to like one particular metric or maybe a particular class of metrics being the ones that are sort of regressed off plus minus or trying to kind of view it through plus minus as influential as those metrics are. I, I just don't see them as being um, such a large part of the hall of fame conversation within a time period that maybe Karolinko would be under consideration that he would be able to get in off of that alone. Uh, and, and I don't think he should get in off of that alone. I think it takes a lot of different things uh, to take into consideration. And when you look at, like you said, the lack of hardware, the lack of, you know, uh, all-star appearances, he made one all-star game, never was an all-NBA player, only a few times was an all-defensive player, only once was a first-team all-defensive player, never won a defensive player of the year award. If we're talking about a guy who kind of his calling card should be, if we're talking in traditional terms, should be his defense you really would like to see more of like the Ben Wallace type of like, you know, you were a defensive player of the year. You were an all defensive first team player for more years than this. You did get more MVP consideration. I mean, uh, Kirilenko's best MVP finish was 13th in 2004. Uh, and so I think it's just like uh, the combination of all those things leaves him short uh, for me in terms of should he be in and certainly leaves him short in terms of the question of will he be in. But again, really good player you know he should be in the if they ever open a hall of really good nba players in i don't know uh springfield illinois not springfield massachusetts <laughs> then maybe that you know he he would be a, a player that would be inducted there yeah so so neil the the one can i agree with more but earlier you said uh, i think on basketball reference 0.8 percent chance of getting the hall of fame right 0.4 percent okay 0.4 way off there i'm half that okay so the, so the one You're doubling thing, his chances. <laughs> so, the, so the one thing I'll say here, um, because I'm actually going to say he's going to get in, and I think he should get oh, in. Oh, you think he'll get in? Okay. So this is why. And we actually didn't get around to this. Um, so it's the Basketball Hall of Fame, right? Not the NBA Hall of Fame. Um, and that NBA reference, or I'm sorry, the Basketball Reference page does not take into account international career, right? Um, and when you look at his international career, he, he's the best Russian player to, to ever come to the NBA and play. Um, you know, he started playing for CSKA Moscow at age 15. He turned pro at 15, and he won a championship before he came to the NBA. He won a championship during that lockout season in 2012, and he won a championship with Moscow after he left the NBA. So he won three championships over there. He won two MVP awards over there. And then he also brought Russia a, a, a bronze medal in 2012 Olympics um, in London, dropped 35 on Great Britain that year. He beat Argentina in the bronze game pretty much by himself. Um, I mean, that Argentina team had like six NBA players on it, like Ginobili and Luis Scola. And he led the team, of course, because he's Kurlenko in points, rebounds, blocks, and steals. And the reason like, he wouldn't get in if, if it was just NBA career alone but as I, if you can look at the last several years, I've been shocked. I, I, 
the bar has been lowered, I think, on what it takes for an international player to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, last year, like Dina Roger got in from he played for Boston for like three years. Oh, yeah, his, I remember his, him. Yeah, his international career was just as good, if not maybe slightly less impressive than Kurlenko's. Um, and his NBA career was only, I think, four or five seasons for Boston. Um, and he he just got in. Vladi Divac got in, which, again, NBA career with Kurlenko's, I would say they're relatively the same. I, I would say internationally, Divac might be a tad better. So with that in mind, I, I think his NBA body of work, definitely not Hall of Fame worthy, but that combined with being the best player from his country of all time with, you know, three championships, multiple MVPs, again, the Russian league, I don't think it compares to the European leagues, but it's still, you know, uh, there's NBA players that play in that league today. I think all of that together with his NBA body of work, I think one day he will get in. I, I think the international um, really pushes him in the picture. And I know we didn't get into that earlier. It kind of got off off track and I kind of need to bring it back. But I, I do think he will get in from that from that merit alone as an international candidate. They, that committee is allowed to nominate at least kind of two players to be voted on every year. Um, and, you know, they have kind of taken care of all of the great European players from the past now. And it's kind of the, the more current players. Um, and Kurlenko, I, on my mind, is kind of the top of the list of eligible people they can keep nominating year after year. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. And that's something that's kind of missed when we look at the, the NBA only stats. And I think about, you know, it's, it's not quite the same, but uh, it's a very well taken point that, your your non NBA accomplishments do get taken into account in um, in the basketball Hall of Fame. I think about a player that I said he had Kirilenko had basically identical NBA wins above replacement to, and that's Grant Hill. That's a player that you know he he played about. 200 more games in his career than Kirilenko did, but not a not an overly long, certainly not as long and productive as a career uh, as as maybe we were expecting out of him from his college days and earlier in his career. And the college basketball is kind of what put him over the top. I think you know if you were just looking at his NBA numbers probably not a hall of famer. I mean, really good player early in his career, but then the injuries kind of, uh, you know, hampered that. But if you look at his, his play at Duke and the, the high profile player that he was there, it, it was enough to put him over the top. And so I think it's really interesting that Kirilenko is another player that they has identical NBA value. If you believe the, the wins above replacement to uh, Grant Hill, uh, to, to, you know, Grant Hill and both players can kind of point to this body of work outside of the NBA to say like, Hey, I did a lot of other stuff that, you know, don't just look at my NBA resume, look at the whole body of work. Yeah. No. And like Ralph Sampson, same thing. I never yeah, thought he was a hall of famer. Sure. I think Sampson Hill, those people, it's starting to get more well-known. It is the basketball hall of fame. And honestly, criteria wise, they're supposed to take high school into account as well. It's high school, international, college. So so it's supposed to be everything. So is like Sebastian Telfair going to be in the Hall of Fame or something? <laughs> hey, that documentary, that, that made me think he, he was uh, going to be good in the NBA. I was, I was yeah. very off there. I was very excited about that. I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, it got brought up. Actually, we we're doing Glenn Rice. Um, we we're doing Glenn Rice episode a couple months ago with one of his former teammates at uh, – Michigan, Sean Higgins. And um, he brought up Glenn Rice to won a high school state championship, won a championship at Michigan. Um, and he won one of the pros with the Lakers. There's only been 
11 players in NBA history that have a high school championship, college championship, and NBA championship. Wow. So if you, if you look at it as the Basketball Hall of Fame, it gives Glenn Rice a better chance at it because NBA-wise, I think he's very borderline, very, very good. But if you add in college and you add in high school, it kind of pushes him in the conversation. He should be getting a little more looked at than, uh, than maybe the voters have today. So that's the, the high school lesson there. I guess it does count. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, yeah, you compare that with, you know, maybe you could view those like Eurobasket championships that Kirilenko won as sort of like the college, you know, with the equivalent to winning like an NCAA championship or something like that. I don't quite know like necessarily what, what the caliber of play is between the two, but it's probably comparable enough, right? Yeah. I think it's probably it's, higher in Eurobasket, to be honest, than in college basketball. I would say so. Uh, all right, Neil. Well, um, really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, I always love talking about random periods of time in NBA history and in 2000s NBA, I think it's forgotten a lot of the time. And Andrew, Andrew yeah, like Kalenka, that mid 2000s, the mid 2000s yeah. is very lost in time. I feel like and Andrew, Andre Kralenko was one of the, the, you know, great above average players during that time, but definitely gets lost. So it was really fun talking about today. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was fun to dig back into the, not just Kirilenko's career, but that era of, of uh, basketball analytics, I think, is like a really interesting, you know, uh, period of time in which we were just kind of starting to figure out what made players valuable in a way that we had not really examined before. And a lot of like, you know, the growth of the analytics movement to where it is now has its seeds planted during that era. And Kirilenko is kind of one of the players that I find, at least personally, looking back at that time, like synonymous with uh, finding hidden gem of players, you know, uh, these, these guys that are sort of not uh, traditionally uh, considered great players. But if you look at them with metrics, you kind of puts them in a new light, I think. Oh, most definitely. So again, this is Neil Payne. Follow him on Twitter if you don't. Um, read his articles on 538. He's great. Um, Neil, thanks again. Thank you so much. All right. So that concludes today's podcast. I want to thank Neil again for joining to talk about Andre Kurlenko. Um, I had a lot of fun breaking down AK-47's career. And as we said on the podcast, this was someone... Uh, who was who's one of the better players during the 2000s. And, and it's someone you probably haven't thought about in a very long time, uh, unless you're probably a Utah Jazz fan. And, and even then, you might not think of him too often. I, I always say, and please don't take this the wrong way if you're probably a, a Pistons or a Spurs fan because you were doing well during this time period. But I really feel like the mid-2000s was kind of the dark ages of of the NBA. I mean... Shaq and Kobe were winning in the early 2000s. Everyone was on board with that. And at the end of the decade, the big three with KG, Pierce, and Ray Allen was around. LeBron was coming to his own. The NBA really kind of peaked again there. But there was those four, five, six years, again, when Kurlinka was kind of at his peak in the mid-2000s that viewership went down a little bit. And Kurlinka was one of those kind of forgotten stars that, that did well during that time. And uh, he was the one who was in the first or second rounds of fantasy drafts because of how you could fill up a box score. And when you watch Sports Center, you would see those unique lines, you know, with eight blocks and seven steals, which for me, again, as I said on the podcast, I love those random box scores that don't really make sense when people have six points, but then they have 
18 boards and seven, eight blocks. Those are the most fun for me. And that's the kind of player Kurlenko was. And again, if he played in today's NBA, we, I don't know if he would be considered a unicorn, like the Giannis's of the world, the Perzingas's of the world, the Zions of the world, but he'd be right up there because he was super unique. There's not many players that have played like him and he really could do it all. Uh, so, so with that, uh, I'll get you all out of here. Again, if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, and we will talk to you next Monday. Thank you.